Now hear the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Pamphyls and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay. The God of this people, Israel, um, in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm fed them, led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been given, being sent, the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of them, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also, it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes in is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting with the synagogue uh, broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were lifted up with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it away aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light unto the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. That was wonderful. Love you. Well, amen. I hope you still have your Bibles. My name's Tyler Holder, and I am our pastor of men's and young adult discipleship here at Gospel City, and I would love to see how many of you brought a physical copy of God's Word today. Could you hold up your Bibles for me real quick? Okay, okay. Oh, wow. We got a study Bible down front. Praise the Lord. Okay, all right. Here's the deal. If you grew up in the 90s, you have been waiting for this moment your entire church life. How many of you are familiar with the old sword drill? Come on. If you didn't grow up in church or evangelicalism in the 90s, you have no idea what I just said. Let me catch you up to speed over the last three decades. The sword drill, this is the sword of the Lord. You hold it by the spine, right? And let me see the spine. And here in a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn to a passage. Now, you're competing against the Bible next to you. So if you have a device, you are already behind the eight ball because those don't count in the old sword drill, okay? All right, are you ready? So Bible's up. Here we go. Now, remember, you're competing against the person next to you. Are we ready? 
Here we go. One, two, three. Go to the first missionary journey map of Paul. Some of y'all didn't even know there were maps in your Bible. Praise the Lord, okay? It's in the back, okay? It's in the back. It's fine if you didn't know, okay? And if you're like, man, what is this guy doing? Why are we doing this? What is a sword drill? Just Google it. I'm sure there's some wonderful YouTube camp videos from Awana from 1993. I hope you've made your way, right? And if you have a device, man, that's fine. You don't have the maps. Let me catch you up. This is what we are looking at in the backs of our Bibles, now, I want us, before we jump into Acts 13, man, I, and I really hope you, you really had a competition with the person next to you, by the way. Like my inner, like number 10 level competitive would have come out in that moment, and I would have slapped your Bible out of your hand before you went. <laughs> That's why I'm up here by myself. This is what we're seeing when we look at the first missionary journey of Paul. Now, as we begin to unpack Acts 13 last week, what we saw is we see this shift that's happening. We see the conversation in the book of Acts shift from Peter and go to Paul, shift from Jerusalem and move to Antioch, shift from primarily Jewish to primarily Gentile, shift from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And what we saw is that there's this mission-sending center in Antioch. And last week, we saw Paul and Barney go from Antioch and travel down to Salamis. And they walked some 90 miles across the island of Cyprus. And we ended last week with Sergius Paulus coming to know the Lord and Simon or in Bar-Jesus being blinded by the power of the gospel being proclaimed through Paul. So we ended last week in Paphos. Now, it shouldn't be lost on us that this journey that we're on today goes from Paphos across the sea and it lands in Perga of Pamphylia. Now, it's important for us to notice just a few things as Gail and Ed read this morning. Luke just summarizes it by saying, and John Mark left them. And, and you got to understand the, the weight of that statement. Now, this John Mark that you see in Acts 13, he's the same John Mark that writes the Gospel of Mark. He's the same John Mark that in Acts 15 will cause a division between Paul and Barnabas because he's Barnabas' cousin and Barnabas wants to take him and Paul doesn't. He's also the same John Mark in 2 Timothy that Paul asks to be sent to him because they've had a reconciled relationship. But in Perga Panphilia, John makes his exit. He says, peace, heads back down to Jerusalem. And then Paul and Barnabas make an overland trek some 100 miles from Perga of Pamphylia to Pisidian Antioch. They cross through the Taurus Mountains. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you because many of you probably have never even heard of or been to the Taurus Mountains. So let's strap up our hikers, throw on our packs, and let me be your expeditionary guide for a moment. If we were to all agree that I would lead us on an expedition, from here in Granger, we'd walk first to St. Joe, Michigan. Beautiful scenic this time of year. We'd jump on a boat and go down the coast of Lake Michigan and we'd hop off in scenic Gary. And as we, why is that funny? Okay, maybe you've never been to Gary. So we hop off in Gary and we just start walking. And we go through Gary, middle of the night, safest time of day. And as we walk through Gary, we head through Hammond. And from Hammond, we take a little break in the south side of Chicago. Again, great time of year to do that. And our journey takes us through Gary to Hammond, to the south side of Chicago. Our goal is the Mag Mile. But, I mean, we got to pass through some treacherous places before we get there. 
See, what's happening here in Acts chapter 13, in just the first few verses, Paul has, or Luke has summarized for us this journey, this journey filled with peril and robbers and treachery, a journey that is not for the weak of heart. That's important for us to grasp because every mile they tread underfoot, they're bringing with them a missionary message. Paul and Barnabas are committed to the proclamation of God's word. They're coming into the area of the world known as Galatia and they are coming proclaiming a message. They are speaking the words of the Lord to Gentiles and Jews alike. Now remember, within the book of Acts, Jesus, he's building his church. And he's building his church and he's going through and proclaiming the gospel through faithful disciples that the Holy Spirit is empowering for the glory of God. And as he's building his church, we are on this whirlwind of force with Paul and Barnabas as they're sent out on this first missionary journey. We are witnesses and beneficiaries of this journey. A journey, again, fraught with peril, fraught with sword and danger, and yet through it all, Paul and Barney are faithful to proclaim the word of the Lord. So today, I just wanted us to kind of get the setting before we jump into the text. It's important for us to see where they are and where they have gone and where they are going on this first missionary journey. And in our text that Ed and Gail read this morning, so grateful, by the way, that you guys did that. In our text this morning, we're going to see the first missionary message that Dr. Luke writes down for us of Paul the Apostle. And in this first missionary message, what we will see is we will see the hope that Paul brings to Jew and Gentile alike in Antioch of Pisidia. And the reality is, is that as we unpack this missionary message, the, the truth is, is that for you and I, the message that we have to proclaim, it isn't far from the message that Paul proclaims here. That Paul's missionary message focuses on the promised savior that God has given us in this world. And it's important for us to grasp that. Last week as we looked at living scent and this week as we look at the missionary message, realize that you have a message to proclaim. It's the same message Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming here in Acts chapter 13. It's the message of the promised savior that God has given into the world. And as disciples, we carry that message. As disciples living sent, we carry that message. So this morning, as we unpack that simple statement, disciples living sent carry the message of the promised savior that God has given into the world. We will look at three components of the missionary message. We'll see God's promises, we'll see Christ's fulfillment, and we'll see our response. You ready? All right, let's go. First point, God's promises. God's promises. Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in Antioch of Pisidia and they do what they always do because they're creatures of habit. They head to the synagogue and after the reading of the law and the prophets there in the synagogue, they invite them, they send word to these visitors that if there's a word of encouragement, I mean, if you have anything to say, brothers, say it. I mean, what an open door, right? Paul, who's never slow to speak, speaks boldly for the gospel's sake. He sees the opportunity and opens up the gate to share the gospel. And realize that as Luke's writing, he's giving us a perspective into who Paul is. 
Because Paul knows his audience. Paul knows that he's walking into Antioch of Pisidia where there is a large Jewish audience who have no idea who Jesus is. They have no connection with the Jews in Jerusalem save being a Jew themselves and they don't understand or have a, a, a grasp of what's happened. So Paul walks in and he goes from the Old Testament and he begins to outline for them this promised savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Paul understands his audience. He understands how to contextualize the gospel to his hearers. He never wavers on the core truths of the gospel, but he did share the gospel differently depending upon who he was speaking to. I hope your Bibles are open. Acts chapter 17, look at verse, or Acts chapter 13, look at verse 17. Paul's in the synagogue and this is the message that he proclaims. He says, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying Canaan, or after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom they testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. See, what Paul is doing here is he's going to the Jews in the synagogue at the, in Antioch of Pisidia and he's giving them an arc of their history. So beginning in the patriarchs, he unpacks for them God's faithfulness to the promises that he's made. He moves from the patriarchs and Abram and Ur of the Chaldees and he shows us Moses who leads the people out of Egypt in the Exodus and wanders for 40 years in the wilderness. Then he gives us a glimpse of Joshua and the judges who God gives because his people were sinful and they needed correction. And then he shows us who Samuel was. Samuel, who in 1 Samuel chapter three is the first person to hear the word of the Lord in a generation. And then he shows us the sinfulness of the kings and Saul, and the promise given to David, and he ends this arc of history by tying it all together with John the Baptist, the promised forerunner of the Messiah. See, what Paul is doing is he's communicating something very unique and special to the Jews there in Antioch of Pisidia. He's showing them that from the faith of Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldees to the timidity of Moses to respond to God's invitation to Joshua committing to not let the word of the law depart to the judges correcting a sinful people to Samuel who's hearing the word of the Lord to the kings who were poor substitutes for a savior to John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. God has kept his promises to his people. Just, just let that sit for a second. That for generations upon generations upon generations, God has faithfully kept his promise. He's done it then and he does it now. That God has extended promise upon promise upon promise that the history of God, his story, man, it's a story of promises kept and promises made. 
Just pause for a moment and let that take root in your heart. That our God, he isn't a God of tacit promise and maybe I'll keep it. He's a God who is faithful today. Consider for a moment just a few of his promises that he gives us in scripture. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to produce great fruit through us if we abide in the vine. He promises to reach and redeem the world through faithful disciples like you and me. He promises to use his word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that by it we won't stumble. He promises to give us a light burden and an easy yoke with him. He promises that his grace is sufficient enough for your weakness. He promises that we will face and endure trials of many kinds because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. God promises to be our rock and our firm foundation. He promises to be the father to the orphan. He promises to separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. He promises that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. Over and over and over and over again, God extends his faithful promises to you. And his track record of fulfilling those promises is something that you and I can find great hope and solace in. Because you see, our God that we serve, he's not like me and he's not like you. He's faithful always to keep the promises that he's made. All throughout scripture, God extends promises. Some promises he extends to all of creation. Some promises he extends just to those who have faith in Christ. The point of it all, what Paul is doing here in this missionary message is simply this. He's showing the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia that God is faithful, that he is faithful to keep his promises and that he kept his promise to reconcile the world at the cost of his only son. And here in Acts 13, Paul begins this message with this simple truth that God has promised and he has kept his promise. From Abraham to John the Baptist, there is a crimson thread that's woven throughout the story of scripture. It's about Jesus from beginning to end. And he's showing us the beauty of the redemption that Christ offers by showing us the beauty of God's promises kept throughout all of scripture. Paul's building rapport, he's building a connection, he's communicating the gospel clearly to his hearers by appealing to the, true, the proven track record of God. And I would say this, for you and I today, when we think about God's promises, when we think about the mission that God's given us as disciples living sent, that we too have a proven track record to point to. And we can point back to God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise. And that we too, as disciples living in a broken world, condemned by sin, should seek to build rapport like Paul is doing to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia. We should build a relationship. We should put in the time. We should point to who God is in the midst of brokenness. We can proclaim the beauty of the message of the gospel and we can build rapport and relationships with those that need it most. Let me ask you, church, how are you at that? How are you at building rapport with those far from the Lord? 
How are you at pointing back to the faithfulness of God's promise? Because he's extended great promises to you. And he has been faithful to complete and bring those promises to fruition. God's promises are vast and they are plenty to us, but the reality is, is that we only need one promise. And the promise that we need most is the promise of redemption provided through Christ. Paul's message doesn't stop here though. Paul is building rapport. He's building connection with those there in Antioch of Pisidia. We see him proclaim and appeal to the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And then we see point number two, Christ's fulfillment through it all. Christ's fulfillment through it all. From God's promises, Paul moves to showing Christ's fulfillment in these promises, and the climax comes in verses 23 and 29. So I hope you have your Bible still open to Acts chapter 13. Look at verse 23 and then verse 29. Paul says, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he what? Man, that was weak sauce for 9 a.m. As he what? He promised. Absolutely. Look at verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they laid him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Realize that the climax of Paul's message is coming in these two verses. In Paul's mind, two things are true of Jesus. He is the savior that God promised and he is the savior that God inspired the writers of the Old Testament to prophesy about. As Paul is introducing Jesus to the Jews here in Antioch of Pisidia, he's doing so by drawing back on the promises of God and then showing their fulfillment in Jesus. Did you know that throughout the life of Jesus, he fulfilled some 300 promises? Did you know that? There are 300 prophecies made about Jesus, 300 plus that he fulfills just in his life. Isn't that crazy? Like, man, I'm good if I can keep one promise, right? God prophesied and gave over 300 about Jesus. We're gonna go through all 300 this morning. (laughs) Just making sure you're listening. That's not true. We're gonna go over 155. (laughs) No, that's not true either, okay? Just, Just imagine for a moment. Like, go with me on a journey that you, in your life, you have lived your whole life searching for the best, most beautiful, most full and robust, organic, single origin, light roast, smooth, full-bodied cup of coffee. Just imagine that's what you've spent your life journeying on, right? That you have spent your life pursuing and reading and searching for this illusory, organic, single origin, light roast, full-bodied, smooth finished coffee that's been honey processed. Let's just say, let's just say that's you. Now imagine that in your searching, you found a group of people that were searching for that as well. And every week you gathered together to read Green Bean Digest. If you thought of vegetable, you're not a coffee person, we'll talk later. But every week you gathered together to open up Green Bean Digest and read about, man, how there's this pursuit, these promises of, man, there's, there's a bean out there that's like this, that farms far away are seeking to find this perfect single origin, organic, full-bodied, light roast, smooth finished, honey processed coffee, that it is there and it is promised, they just haven't gotten to it yet. Year after year, you gathered every week with this group of coffee connoisseurs, with your copy of Green Bean Digest. Man, you just poured over it. And you were seeking more than anything in the world for this to be true. 
And one day in your gathering, Barry the barista shows up. He hand grinds some single origin, organic, light roast, full body, smooth finished, honey processed coffee. And he does a Chemex, because that's what we do with a gooseneck kettle, 202 degrees. And as he does it, it does a full bloom and he pours you a cup and he hands it to you. And he says, the promised being that you've been searching for, I've found, and here it is. Can you imagine the joy on your face as you take that first? Maybe, maybe you're not a coffee person. Maybe you're like chocolate. Maybe that's what you would do, right? But can you just imagine the joy? Like I have a coffee kit I bring with me anywhere I travel in the world. Hand ground, I got a kettle, I got it all. Man, I would be elated if I had spent my whole life searching for this. Now just imagine if you're a Jew in Antioch of Pisidia, who for your whole life, you have been hearing about God's promises to send a savior and you have no idea that he's come. You have no idea that he's already lived his life. He has died a substitutionary death for your sins and mine. He was crucified on the cross, laid in a tomb. Three days later, breath rushed back into his lungs. Imagine, if you will, the excitement that would come, the worship that would erupt from your heart with that message. And I get excited just about Green Bean Digest. How much more so would these Jews and these God-fearing men be excited about hearing the good news that Paul and Barnabas are bringing to them? By showing them that the promises God has made have found their fulfillment, have found their yes and amen in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. They bring this beautiful message. Paul is confirming for them that the promises that they've been hearing about for generations have come to fulfillment in Christ. What are these promises? Here's just a few. Here's just a few that Christ fulfilled in his crucifixion. The first promise is found in Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Who do you think that pictures? That pictures Jesus. Or this promise. Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Is that not the testimony of our Savior? What about this promise? Psalm 22, verses 17 and 18. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. Let your mind fly back to Jesus' imprisonment where they're casting lots for his clothes. Would not the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia be elated to hear that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus? Time and time again. We see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. What about this one? Psalm 22, 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Is it not strange that they pierced Jesus' side and ensured that he is dead and as they came to break his legs to ensure that he was dead, they didn't because he had already passed. Or this one from Zechariah. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Time and time again, the Old Testament points to a savior who fulfills these promises. And the last one. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Do you not remember Joseph of Arimathea who gave his fresh hewn out grave tomb 
to Jesus. See, what, what we have to realize, church, is that this side of the cross, we should look back and marvel and worship the God who has kept these promises that find their fulfillment in Jesus. That we should look back and, and see that what God has promised, Christ has fulfilled. And for those at Pisidian Antioch, for those who are hearing this for the first time, some of you maybe are hearing this for the first time, that their invitation is the exact same that our invitation is today. That as Paul, as he's unpacking God's promises, notice what he says in verse 38. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul invites them to lay aside the law, to lay aside the burden that it has brought by revealing their sin and place their faith in Christ, the one who fulfilled God's promises. I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you. If I could, and I'd sit across from you with that cup of coffee in my hand and I would look you in the eye and tell you time and time again that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Man, if we could just gather together in that coffee shop and sit down with one another and, and look at each other in the eyes. And I would say to you, realize that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Awkward young adult, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Single mother who's struggling with burdens, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Teenager who's just kind of coming into themselves, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Men who are halfway here and halfway not, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. I would love to sit down with you and simply walk through the promises that God has given you. I'd love to sit down with you and look at you in the eyes over that beautiful cup of Java and realize with you that God has done a great work to redeem you. And we need to be reminded of that work, don't we? Notice what Paul says. He says, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, verse 39, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Realize that the law was given to bring about an awareness of your sinfulness and that through Christ alone you are justified, you are made right by faith in him. God's given us the law, but he's also given us the redeemer. Which leads us to our third point, my response. God's made the promise. Christ has fulfilled these promises. Now look at the response that we have here in our text. This missionary message that Paul spends his time unpacking over a, really a two-week period, this message that he is proclaiming to the Jews at Antioch of Pisidia, it requires a response, doesn't it? And realize that, man, sometimes the responses we receive aren't the responses we expect. I can remember the first time that I ever traveled overseas. I was 17 years old. I went to Argentina. We were working with a local church down there. And as we arrived, I showed up at the church. And, and I'm kind of that weird, awkward teenager at that point. Just imagine this, but younger and more energy. So that's kind of what I was. So awkward today, awkward then. And as I'm there in the church, man, I get cornered by these two Argentine youth. 
these two guys, and they just start speaking a million miles an hour to me. I'm sure it was slow to them. It's a million miles an hour to me. I don't understand a, a lick of Spanish. And they are just raising their voices, and I'm kind of cornered in an upper room, and I'm like, I don't know, am I about to get hurt? I don't know. And they start saying, like, Iglesia, Iglesia. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, Iglesia. Bonito, bonito chica. I'm like, I don't have any idea what you're saying to me. And they start making the symbol, right? So the universal symbol of church, I would have thought it was this, you know, and see all the people. But it wasn't, it was this. Um, some of y'all, you know, you know, right? So as they're speaking and as they're asking me all of these questions, man, I finally come to the realization that what they're asking me is, did I have any pretty girls from my church with me? And I was like, sure, yeah, see. Sí. Si, bonita. I don't even know if bonita is the word. I just was just trying to parrot them as best as I could, right? And I can just imagine the, the letdown that they would have as they're cornering me in an upper room of a church in Argentina wanting to know how many beautiful girls I had brought with me, which I didn't, none, right? Their consternation on their part and my ignorance on my part, I didn't respond like they thought I would. And, and the exact same thing is true when we look at the responses here of, to Paul's first missionary message. Because you and I, we should expect the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia to be the ones that respond. And they respond well. Because they are hearing about Jesus for the very first time, the Savior that has been brought to them to fulfill the promises God has given them. But their response is not the response that we would expect. Their response is to thrust it aside. Notice verses 44 through 46. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you. Since you thrust it aside... And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The word thrust that Paul uses here is to push away forcefully. This is not a gentle thrusting aside. Their hearts were hardened by sin. And hearts hardened by sin will find the invitation given through the gospel impossible to grasp. Let me say that again. Hearts hardened by sin will find the invitation to respond to the gospel impossible to grasp. Our role, our role as disciples living sent is to be a faithful proclaimer of the truth that has set us free. Your role, my role as a disciple living sent is in distribution, not production. We should distribute the gospel freely and faithfully to all who would hear. And we should trust God to reap an eternal harvest. Our role is distribution. But notice, that's not the only response we see. The second response we see is that of rejoicing and glorifying God. Notice verses 48 and 49. This is the second response that Paul and Barnabas received. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I love that. That man the Gentiles, I mean, they're just kind of sitting back, just kind of waiting for the door to be opened for them. They're waiting for the good news of the gospel to come to them. And when it does, they rejoice and glorify the Lord. But they don't stop there 
Notice the add-on, the tag that Luke gives us. The word of the Lord, verse 49, was spreading throughout the whole region. Because the Gentiles in Antioch of Pisidia knew that the message that redeemed their lives is a message that should be proclaimed to the whole region, the whole area. Did you know that the gospel that has redeemed you is a message that's worth proclaiming wherever God has placed you? That the message of the gospel that God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus and that Jesus offers to you redemption and reconciliation when you repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ alone. That message is a message that is worth our proclamation. And man, when people receive it and when they rejoice over it, oh, what joy the kingdom of God has. There is such joy in the kingdom when one sinner repents of their sins. Realize that redemption being offered to the Gentiles was something that they had not heard of until this point. And when they saw the promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus through the Old Testament writings, their hearts were cut to the quick and they responded in faith to the invitation of eternal life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that the only response we see, that one of the responses we see here is that of rejoicing and glorifying. And praise the Lord that that rejoicing and glorifying then spreads to the surrounding region. Their response is the response of those who initially respond to the gospel and experience salvation. It's a beautiful thing. But it's not the last response we see. The last response we see is found in the last verse of our text. Notice verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This last response that we see is a response of a disciple who is living sent and carrying the message of the promised Savior that God has given us into the world. And notice what happens. After being rejected by the Jews, after finding welcome by the Gentiles and being thrust or pushed out of the city, Luke gives us the snapshot of Paul and Barnabas' response. They are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, Paul and Barnabas had an unwavering assurance that as many as were appointed to eternal life would receive it. And they tread miles underfoot and they would have been satisfied with just one coming to know. They knew that the work of redemption is a work that's initiated by a sovereign God. They knew that God was a major actor in Israel's history and he is the major actor in your salvation history. And the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus should garner in us a beautiful, worshipful response. So this morning as we come to the close, as we land the plane, I want to invite you to consider this last question. Having seen the promises of God, having seen the fulfillment in Christ, and having seen the responses of those in Antioch of Pisidia, let me ask you this last question. Does your heart erupt in worship when you see the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus? Does your heart just erupt in worship do you just realize and see the, the magnitude to which God has gone to bring you into the fold? Are you erupting in praise and worship of the God who would redeem you, who at the sake of his son ushered you into eternal life? And that should garner in you some praise and some worship and some excitement. 
We don't obey God because he's some joy killer. We obey God because he's given us eternal life. And the gospel message that he has given us to proclaim to the world brings worship to our hearts. And do you erupt in worship at the praise and glory of God's wonderful work? Because when our hearts are erupt in worship, obedience is easy. Because we desire to obey the one who has redeemed us. So church, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And I hope beyond hope that this week you would erupt in worship to the God who is faithful to keep the promises that he's given us. So Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us precious and great promises. That through you and you alone, we experience salvation. So let our hearts just erupt in worship today. Let our hearts just erupt in praise this week. Let our hearts be filled with the joy of salvation. Lord, obedience is easy when our hearts are in tune with you. Lord, may it be. See you, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.